0: It is easy to forget. Whether it's where you put your stinking car keys, right? Always right before you have to leave. Or whether it's you're trying to remember the name of that actor in that movie, the guy with the face and the hair, right? You remember that kind of thing? It's easy to forget. Forgetting takes no effort or intention. It requires no passion or focus. It is easy to forget, whether it be moments and memories or dreams and desires. It is easy to forget. You see, forgetting simply happens. It seems to be the default setting in the human heart. We get so consumed by errands and appointments, bills and chores, weighing and planning, worrying and wondering that we forget. It is easy to forget. It is in our failing to remember that things we once held as precious begin to slip through our grasp. Whether it be a birthday or anniversary, a moment with a loved one, or even our sense of identity. It is easy to forget. You see, much of my responsibility as a pastor is not to unearth new ideas or discover hidden knowledge, but it's to call our community to remember. Remember. If there's a word for the church today, I think it's that. It is for us to remember. You see, and this is in line with the biblical narrative. All throughout history, God has raised up people to call the people of God to remember. As Moses is getting ready to depart and transition the leadership to Joshua, we find his series of of, of sermons he gives to the children of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy. And over and over and over again, he says, they are to remember. Remember. As Isaiah was calling the people of God to turn back to Yahweh and remember how God had delivered them, he used that same phrase: "Remember, remember, remember." And it is here in our teaching text today that Paul calls this same community of Jesus in Ephesus to that very task of remembering. It is easy to forget, but the calls of followers of Je- the call of followers of Jesus is to remember. Paul begins by saying, therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Today we're continuing in our series in the book of Ephesians. And I'm not going to lie to you guys, today's going to be a really fun one. For those of you who are down with, like, doing a lot of the Jesus Bible stuff, you know? It's not going to be really on the surface. It's going to be kind of heady or whatever. So for those of you who, like, aren't super into that teaching... We're sorry. It'll be better next week. (laughs) For those of you who are in, I'm so glad you're here. Bible nerds, we assemble. All right, let's do it. Yeah, there we go. Bible nerds, we're here. We're representing. All right. So throughout the book thus far, Paul has been doing this masterful explanation of what has happened now in Christ in light of the, the, his life, death, and resurrection. And last week, John did a brilliant job at explaining Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 about how we move from death to life because of what Jesus has done. Now, Paul's going to talk about this exact same idea, but this time from a different lens. Instead of talking about it from death to life, he comes at it through the lens of covenant and calling. And you'll see that as we go through the text. Now, um, He's calling this community in Ephesus to do two things, to remember who they were and to remember who they have become. But before we get into those two uh, reminders, there's a bit of context that we have to do first. So first is some work around Jew and Gentile, these terms. Paul says, formally, you who are Gentiles by birth are called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done by human hands. In Paul's biblical imagination, the world is divided into two groups, Jews and Gentiles. It is the people of God and the people who are outside of those families. Shorthand and often derogatory ways of using the, referring to these groups is that of the circumcised and the uncircumcised. Now each group pledged pledged their allegiance to different deities and had vastly different worship cultures. And so the Jewish people worship Yahweh alone. And Gentiles worship the pagan gods and a variety of them at that throughout different points and places in history. And so one of the identifying markers of being a part of the family of God, the Jewish people, was by uh, participating in the act of circumcision. Now I think everybody in this room knows what that is. If you don't, no worry. See Jake after service; he'll explain all of what that is to you. So, if you have any questions, please see him. Um, he'll he'll be happy to help. But um, circumcision was a commandment. It was a sign of covenant, and it was an act of consecration. First, it was a commandment for the Jewish people for them to circumcise the men in the household. It was a sign of the covenant they made with God that he would be their God and they would be his people. And it was also an act of consecration. It is this physical act of separating themselves from the other people. In the ancient imagination, the commandment, the sign, and the act of circumcision was simply a way of identifying who was the people of God and who was outside of that family. Now, Paul is calling the Gentiles in Ephesus to remember that they were previously not a part of this family. Remember, as Paul is writing this letter, he's writing to a mixed community of both Jews and Gentiles. And tensions between these communities were insanely high, to say the least. And there were all sorts of debates happening in the community about whether or not Gentiles who come to faith in Jesus were required to partake in the act of circumcision. To be called uncircumcised was not merely a matter of physical state, but it was a derogatory term used to exclude and shame Gentiles as not being a part of God's family. And to call someone circumcised was actually like a, a badge of honor in the ancient Jewish mind. It was a place of pride saying, I am a part of God's family. Now, I know when we talk about this, it is like, right? Like, dude, who cares? (laughs) That seems like such an inconsequential thing. But in ancient times, this was a hot-button debate. This was widely contentious. And, like, if you're Bible nerds, you know this continually comes up. Like, Paul's particularly passionate about this in his letter to the Galatian church. Um, There's also this moment in Acts 15 where Paul confronts Peter to his face because he's treating Gentiles different than the Jews. And there's this huge... The the early church leadership has this council where they make a decision on whether or not Gentiles are to be circumcised and they ultimately come to the resolution that they don't in order to be in the family of Jesus. All of that to say, this was a really big deal for this community. And um, not so much the act, though that was really important, but more so what the act represented and the kind of postures that were underneath that act and underneath that kind of mentality. The Jews felt that they were the exclusive people of God. And they say, if you want to be a part of this family, it's going to require something from you. And the Gentiles were like, I didn't sign up for that, you know? And there was that kind of conflict within the community. And so we don't have a ton ton of time to go into, like, all the intricacies of that. Again, see Jake after. He's happy to help. But um, Paul alludes to what he believes about this when he says this line which is done in the body by human hands. Snodgrass says this, although the Jews were bad-mouthing the Gentiles as, quote-unquote, the uncircumcision, in Paul's mind, Jews were not better off, for the circumcision in which they boasted was merely a human circumcision. They, too, were, quote, in the flesh. They lived in the same realm as the Gentiles, even with them, even with their circumcision. By the hands of men stresses the human origin of their circumcision in which God was not involved. And so Paul's taking a shot at the Jewish people who are proud about uh, dividing up the body of Christ in these paradigms. And he kind of throws a dig with saying that by the human hands. Now what's super cool, Bible nerds, where you at? This phrase, by human hands, is exactly what the Jewish people mocked the pagans for because they said they worship God's made by human hands. And so the same insult, they lobbed the Gentiles, Paul flips on it and lobs it back to them and with their mentality and their pride and their arrogance and how they're doing it. So Jewish people would be like, you worship God's you made. And he's like, you're worshiping an act that you are doing in which God is not a part of. Paul is doing that subtly and subversively. The Bible is so stinking cool, right? So... um. The the big idea that Paul is saying here is this enterprise they're participating in is in vain because God is not in it. And so tensions are rising. That's f- It's going through the roof in this community. And the room was filled with gas. And so one small ignition could erupt and destroy this community. And so Paul speaks into that relationship. Now... We don't have a ton of time to go through all the history of why there was all this beef between the Jews and the Gentiles, but know that this relationship was marked by division and hostility. William Barclay, in writing about how the Jewish people thought about the Gentiles, said this, the Jew had an immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentiles, said the Jews, were created to be fuel for the fires of hell. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her greatest hour of need for that, so for, the, for that would simply bring another Gentile into the world. That's the kind of hatred and animosity that's between these. And it was reciprocal. It wasn't just the Jews felt this way about the Gentiles. The Gentiles felt this way about the Jews. And so this contempt between these groups was mutual. Now imagine them coming to church together in that, like, a a way to maybe help help your mind wrap around this is imagine former Nazis and Jewish people worshiping in the same community, the kind of atrocities and horrible things that happened there and that kind of power imbalance, right? Uh, Imagine um, when our country was so divided in in our history, uh, blacks and whites worshiping in the same community before reconciliation and things had taken place. That kind of there's a tension in the air is what this community was experiencing and what Paul is speaking to. Now, aren't we asking the same kinds of questions as a people right now? There are all sorts of walls that divide us, whether it be gender, race, class, political ideologies, even church doctrine and practice. Sadly, The church has failed in her calling to be a unified people and is often even more fragmented than the rest of the world. And so Paul begins this section naming what is true about the Gentiles past in this community but also naming what is true about the Gentiles present in this community. And here's something you must understand. Unity does not come through pretending there are no differences or history here but rather choosing to view and treat one another in light of the finished work of Jesus. And so Paul is dismantling the idea that anybody in this community is superior or inferior to others. And to do this, he reminds them to remember first who they were. Remember that at that time, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God on the world. Notice the things he says. Separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship, foreigners to the covenant, without hope, without God. Now, there's two levels that this is working on here. One is spatial, and the other is experiential. Right, spatial, without God, separate from Christ. There is clearly a distance he is trying to portray here that is leading him to be in a place without hope. Now, not only are they without God, separate from him, but they're also distant from life with God and don't get to experience the love of the covenantal God of Israel. So they are without hope. In the language of Jesus, the Gentiles were lost Now, Paul pulls no punches as he paints this harrowing picture of life apart from God. Because of our sin and our rebellion and our desires to determine good and evil on our own terms, brothers and sisters, we too were lost. But the good news is that Jesus comes to find us. Now, I want you to pause for a moment. It's easy to talk about Jews and Gentiles and circumcision and all these other things and not let it sink down into your own being. But I want you to pause for a moment and remember what life was like apart from God for a moment. And maybe you're here, and you don't know God in this experiential way. God has remained an idea or a set of beliefs and not actually a person you know. The Spirit is inviting you to be found by Him. You might be lost, but God is calling out to you. Now, Paul doesn't want them to just remember who they were, but also to remember who they are. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In Luke 15, Jesus tells three stories, a lost sheep, a lost coin, and two lost sons, contrary to popular belief. Lost, lost sheep, lost coin, two lost sons. In the story of the sheep, this is what Jesus says. He says, suppose one of you has 100 sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep, notice this line, until he finds it? And when he finds it, what does he do? He joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. He calls his friends and neighbors together and says this, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. This is imagery that Jesus wants us to ingrain in our person about God's heart for those who are lost. That he goes to find them and that he carries them home. I love that language of being brought near. It's not that you stumbled upon him. It's not that you found your way to him. It's that God found you and brought you to himself. And I love that image of just carrying on the shoulders. And so he finds us in our wandering, in our delusion, in our rebellion, in our brokenness, and he picks us up and he brings us near to himself again. Now, how was this accomplished? According to Paul, it's through his blood. Now, again, this is an ancient mind talking here. And so language of being by the blood just sounds overtly related to Jesus. And it's not really associated with us with all the deeper layers that the Hebrew mind would have. But when you hear this phrase by the blood, it immediately brings into your mind the idea of atonement. Now, atonement simply means to make right or to reconcile. In Greek, it's and in Hebrew, it's um, You may have like a calendar somewhere, you know, and you'll find the date that says Yom Kippur. That's the, that's the uh, festival of atonement that the Jewish people celebrate. And so this idea of atonement, I think the best English word, and I'm not alone here, a ton of Bible scholars agree with this, is actually the word cover, cover in English. Because it kind of enfolds a lot of things. Imagine if you went to a restaurant with a friend and said, don't worry, I got you covered. That would have all sorts of things behind it that you were going to be paying on their behalf, etc. So it carries with us these ideas of forgiveness, purification, and reconciliation. And so there's so much here that we don't have time to unpack today on atonement. But here's the big idea. Because of our sin and brokenness, through Jesus' life, he covers our life. And from it, we are purified from sin, forgiven from our sins, and note this, reconciled to the one in whom we have sinned against, namely, God. Scott McKnight says this, the design of atonement is to create a community, an ecclesia, which is the Hebrew word for church, meaning literally the called out ones. A zoe, oh sorry, a Konania, which is the word for fellowship. A zoe, which is the word for life, when Jesus says life and life to the full. A new creation. The purpose is to take humans in one condition and put them in another condition. Put them in freedom, in Christ, and in holiness. What Paul is saying is that because what Jesus has done, we have been reconciled to God again. But what Jesus has done doesn't only reconcile us to God, notice this, it also reconciles us to one another. Paul continues, verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups into one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to god through the cross by which he put to death their hostility one thing you're going to realize about paul is he's pretty efficient um, but he's not um, simple in his writing right he takes a handful of words and packs a whole lot into those things that are dense and need to be kind of pulled apart and 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 teased down so first Let's talk about him being, him being Jesus as our peace. For he himself is our peace is how he begins. What comes to your mind when you hear the word peace? Maybe you think like world peace, like no more, like tensions across the world. Everybody is just like happy doing their own things. Maybe you're a parent of small children. And so peace is not fighting over toys or the thing and then the house is just silent. It's nap time. You know what I'm saying? That's what peace is in your mind. Whatever you think of peace, peace, a a common way of thinking about it is simply the absence of hostility, which is fine. That's good. But that's not the whole picture of what the biblical authors mean by this word peace. Peace is deeply tied to God himself and his kingdom. It carries with it more than the idea of simply the the absence of hostility. Snodgrass, again, peace is not merely the cessation of hostility. It is a comprehensive term for salvation and life with God. It refers to the way life should be and is a gift of God that is received only in his presence. The Hebrew word for peace is the word shalom. And Paul very much has this paradigm in his mind as he is writing this. It is the idea that things are not as they were made to be, and when they step into the reality of being what they were made to be, it's the idea of shalom. It's the, it's the word used for bringing wholeness or completeness to something. Like if a wall that you're building in your house was incomplete, it was missing a brick, and you put the brick in, it would be at shalom, it would be at peace. The part of it that's missing is now brought to wholeness. And so the idea here is that peace comes about when something is broken or not as it should be, and it's brought to wholeness. And Paul says that Jesus is our peace. Relationships be human, namely here in Ephesus between Jew and Gentile, is broken. It is not as it should be. But because of what Jesus has done, he has made peace. Ben Witherington. By this, he himself is our peace. Paul means that Christ himself, in his own person and death, I love this, is the destroyer of all hostilities. That would be the best name for like a metal band. Destroyer of all hostilities. Come on. If you're looking for a name, there you go. Between Jew and Gentile, Jesus is the destroyer of all hostilities. I love what Rich Viotis says. This is the cross of Christ isn't just a bridge that gets us to God. It's a sledgehammer that breaks down the walls that separate us. What is broken is human relationships. And so shalom, Jesus being our shalom, means we get to be reconciled to one another again. What God has done in Jesus has taken all of these tribes, all of these divisions, and made one new humanity. He has healed the areas of fragmentation by covering us in his own life. Paul continues, who has made the two groups one. He has taken all the walls that would divide us as human beings and instead has made one new humanity through it. He took took two people who were previously pitted against one another and has mended that relationship. Lynn Kohick says, "God, God proves the power of his great love can unite natural enemies. Such love is beyond human capacity. The goal of unity through sacrificial love infuses and excites Paul's imagination about what Christ's shed blood has achieved. How has Jesus made peace? How has he destroyed um, the hostilities? Well, Paul says he tore down, destroyed the barrier between these two people groups. Now, uh, Paul says, having has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. What is this dividing wall of hostility? It's an interesting phrase. Well, one, on one level... It's an actual barrier. And to understand that, we need to know a little bit more about the temple in Jerusalem. Slide. Awesome. So um, if you were to come to worship Yahweh, you would come to the temple in Jerusalem. And this is how the temple was organized. This is not to scale. It's just so you know. (laughs) But so on that very outside portion is what's called the court of the Gentiles. This is where anybody was allowed to come in. Roman guards would be there. And this is where the Gentiles were allowed to come into worship. And the next layer in was the court of the women. So men and women, Jewish women could come in there and worship in that place. And when you would come to bring your offering, your sacrifice, you would come up to that gate at the court of the priests, and the priest would meet you there, but you weren't allowed to go past that line. And so... Um, From then on, you go to the court of the priests, which only those who were priests could be there. And then you have the Holy of Holies, which only one time a year, a priest who went through the proper ceremonial cleansing could come into that space and offer sacrifices. So with each line, as you get further and further in, it gets harder and harder and harder to progress in. Now, because of what Jesus has done, God's presence has been unleashed in the world. Think about that moment when Jesus dies. What happens to the veil in the temple? It's what? Torn. And so God's presence is now unleashed in the world. Paul uses this paradigm to talk about the pre-existing relationship between Jews and Gentiles because if you were a Gentile and you were standing out there at the wall, there would be a sign letting you know that you could not pass. Check this out. So this is an actual sign they've uncovered um, in part of their uh, archaeology. And here's what the sign says. No stranger, a.k.a. Gentile, is to enter within the balustrade, past that wall, round the temple and enclosure. Whoever is caught will himself be responsible for his ensuing death. Welcome. Come on into church. We're so happy that you're here, right? This is literally a dividing wall. The Bible scholars would estimate it's about five feet tall. So as you're coming into worship, there'd be this clear sign, stop sign, you're not allowed past this point. One thing that Paul is talking about is that barrier it's been destroyed. The presence of God and access to God has now been revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Lenko The two terms together, dividing wall and barrier, indicate a barrier that keeps people from entering a building or city based on hostility. Think in your mind, the Iron Curtain, the Berlin Wall, a racial barrier, a set of railroad tracks that separates the, wrong si- the right side from the wrong side of the city. There's these kind of lines that divide humanity, and Jesus has torn those down. So that's one level Paul is speaking on. But like the genius he is is also, he's speaking on another level. The other level of meaning becomes clear that Paul thinks that this wall of hostility is actually the law. Notice what he says. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and its regulations... The other level that this is working on is the law itself had actually become a a barrier of hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, Paul made a lot of Jewish people angry because of the way he writes about the law. Now, there's a lot of ways that we could misunderstand Paul, and so I I, want to make, hopefully, to the best of my ability, that clear. Paul has a very nuanced vision of what the law is, and this is clear in his letter to Galatians and to the Romans, what he thinks of the law. But here's what he's not saying. He's not saying that the law was bad, because certainly it wasn't, and Paul definitely didn't think that. But the law, in the language of Romans 7, had been hijacked by sin and became a place of hostility. Right? When God called Abraham, he called them to be a blessing to the what? Genesis 12. Nations. God didn't call Israel for Israel's sake. He called Israel for the sake of the world. He was choosing a family to reach the nations. Read the Old Testament. How did they do? Super spot-up job, all the nations, know the Lord, yeah, no, didn't think so. At the very least, it was complicated, if not outright hostile, and they brought sin and curse and death into their own world, right? They failed to do that. Jesus is the promises of Genesis 12 fulfilled. He has brought blessing and healing to the nations. God's whole heart was never for Israel alone. It was for the whole world. He was just choosing Israel to do it through. And so these dividing walls, the the law became a dividing wall. What was meant to be a barrier of protection to keep this community from, from drifting out into faithlessness became a wall that kept outsiders out. And this was not God's heart at all for the law. Um, George Card says this, Paul's point in the Torah, the law, intended by God to be a protective hedge, has been turned by Israelite nationalism into a cultural system that is totally isolated from the Gentile world and thus is responsible for hostility between the Jew and the Gentile. Only by the annulment of the legal code could the barrier be removed. And Paul says this was done In his flesh. Paul is claiming that one, the Jews deliberately drew off unto himself the hostility between the Torah observant Jews and those Gentiles whose company they avoided. And two, that this hostility was brought to him on the cross. And three, that because he refused to return the hostility, it died there with him. This is the picture, this this is a picture substantially borne out by the gospel narratives, and for Paul, the verification of it was plain to be seen in any Pauline church where Jew and Gentile mixed freely uh, on equal terms. The idea is something good, the law, had been hijacked by sin and became something that brought about division, and this is Paul's image in Romans 7, which we definitely don't have time to get into today, but read Romans 7 and 8, and Paul, it's seemingly... That Paul is, like, talking bad about the law, but then he goes on to say, well, is the law sin? Certainly not. So Paul is given a nuanced vision of what it is, but he says that that the law was hijacked by sin. Snodgrass. The law itself is viewed as an instrument of division, which is surely... Which it surely and intentionally was. Israel saw its election in its laws as separating her from the surrounding nations, especially after the exile. Circumcision, Sabbath keeping, and food laws were all primarily indications of the distinctions between Jews and other people, leading to notice arrogance and name calling. Now we're talking about the law, whatever. I may have lost some of you. Welcome back. Hi, good to see you. So, what on earth does this mean for you and me? Because I don't think that you're, like, boasting about keeping the law to your friends, you know? I've ate kosher this month, you know? Someone would be like, good, dude, glad to hear that. I'm on paleo or whatever, right? No big deal. I want you to notice that line, that there was this pride that came about the Jewish people that led to arrogance and to name-calling. There are walls that are dividing the church. There are walls between us and the very people that God is trying to reach and save, the lost. And there are walls between one another. And the way that you see these walls is through arrogance and name-calling. It's one, us thinking that we're better than, smarter than, more intelligent than whoever the other is, and two, us letting them know that through... Name-calling. Somebody instantly loses my respect when they are uncharitable in the way in the the conversation of ideas that they resort to name-calling. Because you know we're not talking about ideas anymore. You think you're better than somebody else because you hold to a certain set of ideas. Churches talk about other churches in this way. The types of worship the Bible versions they teach from, the clothes they wear when they're from the pulpit, the certain set of ideological beliefs they have or, or, or theological beliefs they have around salvation or these other things, and they say, they use terms like, oh, they're just unbiblical. And they throw that term on like a grenade just to justify their, without even engaging in the biblical ideas. It's uncharitable. And it's commonplace here. All I let to say this. Jesus has torn down the dividing walls of hostility. And if we're resurrecting those walls, we're going against the very work of the cross. And shame on us for behaving in that way. That's the walls between us. What about the walls between us and the lost? We do the same exact thing. Arrogance and name calling because we know better, because we know this, oh, they're just like that, and that's you know, we get this spiritual pride about us. The word of the Lord today, remember who you were. You were lost. You didn't stumble your way into righteousness. I carried you by the work that I did for you on your behalf. We remember that we were lost because it shifts our posture towards those who were lost. I was just like that. I was no better, but thanks be to God he picked me up, he carried me, he rescued me from my own devices. The most common metaphor for the people of God in the scriptures is an animal. It's not a glorious horse, you know, or some pristine dog that's kept in a purse, you know what it is? Sheep. Be around one of those for a while, I ain't even a farmer. They're not the sharpest tools in the shed. They easily wander. Their diet's suspect, to say the least. They're kind of gross and dingy. And that's us. That's where we are in this thing. You know, we're not the nice house dog. We're the sheep outside. It's always getting out of the gate. That is the imagery used. But we are sheep loved by God. You know? So let us not think highly of ourselves, Let us think of ourselves accurately, but also know that we are loved. And so... People take this text and they try to pit this against Judaism altogether. See, the Jews got it all wrong this whole time. We Christians know better. Don't forget the origins of our faith. There is no fulfillment of the Christ, the Mashiach, the Messiah without the Jewish story. What are you even talking about? Christ isn't his last name. It means anointed one which is all in light of the whole Old Testament. There is no us without them. There is no our story without that story. It's a continued story in the people of God. Now, why did Jesus do this, destroy this dividing wall of hostility? His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making shalom, peace, peace, and in his body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Jesus is the fulfillment of Genesis 12. He tore down the walls of hostility to build something else beautiful in its place, the people of God. Snodgrass, in in chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, peace is explicitly both a destructive and a constructive act. Division and hostility is destroyed... unity and peace is established. Kohik, this peace creates something new, a single entity reconciled to God, and this peace kills something old, the enmity that existed between humans, all made in God's image. The one new humanity reflects the one spirit and the Father together with the one Lord Jesus Christ. What Jesus tore down he built up, when Jesus tore down the dividing walls of hostility, he established a new new humanity, namely the church. The church is then to model this peace between us as unity. One scholar said of this passage, this is Paul's theology of unity. In Jesus, we are reconciled to one another, and all of our hostility is destroyed. And so what does this mean quickly? First, our differences are not hidden. They are celebrated kohik unity necessitates that differences remain otherwise one has not unity but sameness the unity produced in christ celebrates differences what we want to do when we talk about unity is say oh don't worry we're all the same we're not we have different backgrounds and stories and cultures and things we bring to the table and what God wants to do is unify all of those things to create something beautiful in its place. Here's the image I want you to have in your mind. I want you to think of a choir. Do all of the people in the choir have the same voice? That's not your question. No, they don't. But they all learn to sing in harmony the same song. All of them bring their own expression, their own vocal cords, their own notes, their own range. And together... It becomes a cacophony of praise. That is what the church is to be like. It is not, hey, all of us sound like this. It is all of us bring your voices and let us sing praises to the one who's worthy of praise. So it's not to diminish our differences. It's to celebrate them. Second, this kind of unity must be tangible. Again, Kohik, peace is something tangible. It is both Christ himself and it is the new humanity, a living entity of unity. Peace is the power to reconcile, for the power of the cross manifests itself in peacemaking. This means that peace is not merely in words only, but it must be realized in the midst of conflict. Right? We mistake peace in that there's never any issues. No, peace comes when there is conflict and it's resolved because of what has happened in Christ. That's the biblical motif of reconciliation. There's no need for peace if nobody ever disagrees. It just is. But the fact that there's tensions mandates peace. And lastly, our unity is to be a witness to the gospel. Uh, Scholar Richard Hayes. The visual unity of the church is crucial. In the church, God has broken down the dividing walls between Jews and Gentiles, and indeed... The primary effect of the death of Jesus is to bring this division to an end. Isn't this exactly what Jesus prayed for? Father, that they may be one just as you and I are one. Paul continues. He came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In whom the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. First, and this is free, so you could just take this if you want. Paul is doing a little bit of a dig here at the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had this motif called the Pax Romana, literally Roman peace or the peace of Rome. So the way that Rome established peace was not like, hey, everyone have a seat at the table. Tell us how you feel about that. Like, dude, bummer. Yeah, we'll consider changing that. It's like, no, convert to our ways or die. That was the Roman peace. It's like, hey, get on board or we'll kill you. Have a good day. That was the peace of Rome. So, Paul, they would come to do, they would come and announce, the peace of Rome has expanded. And that was a shorthand way of saying, we just murdered a bunch of people and took their land. And now they're a part of Rome. That was the whole motif. So, Paul is playing on this, and he's saying that Jesus' kingdom and his peace comes through a real kind of peace. He's pitting these pieces against one another. The Pax Romana versus Shalom. The Pax Romana is do what we say or die. The peace of God means all these different tribes, tongues, and nations can come and worship together. It is not the way the world does peace. So that's just free. Take that, whatever you want to do with that. Cool. Moving on. He uses the language of near and far here. I got to hurry up because we're running out of time. So he uses the language of near and far here. Now, to be clear... Paul's not saying that only the Gentiles needed this message. He's saying the Jews needed it as well. Notice he says he came and preached peace to those who were far and peace to those who were near. Why? Because they were both at odds with God. Yes, Jewish people, you had some things right. But also, you missed the Messiah in front of your face. So there's that. And two, right, it's like Gentiles, you're included in all of this too. It's peace to those who are far, peace to those who are near. I wanted to do more of this, but we just don't have time. Go back, go back and read Luke 15 in light of what we're talking about here. It's clear to me that Paul is is teaching with the parable of the prodigal sons in his mind. There was a son who left and went far away, and there was a son who was near, who stayed in the house. The father has to come to both sons. The lost one, as he's coming into the house again, and the near one, as he leaves the house angered about his brother getting to partake of the life with the father again and saying, it's not fair. He hasn't been here the whole time. Dude, come on. Jesus is clearly doing something here at the relationship between Jews and Gentiles, and it's all all in the parables in Luke 15 about going after the things that are lost. And so there's two lost brothers in that story. It's not just the younger brother who goes and blows it all away in Vegas on some bad weekend. It's also the older brother who stayed in the house but missed the father's heart. Come on. People who are here to receive that today are ready to receive that. That is insane. Next. Thank you, John. I appreciate you, bro. You're holding me down. All right. But he says that they move from being far to near. And notice the language. They go from immigrant to citizen. They were a stranger in the land, and now this land is their home. They go from stranger to a part of God's household, meaning they are now the family. They were rejected as a stranger, but now they move into the family. Paul continues. He says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Here at the end of Paul's section, he starts to mix all sort of metaphors. Paul likes to get down like that. He's like... You guys are all a house, and it's like, oh, okay, I can understand that, but this house is growing. I don't exactly understand that, and Jesus is the cornerstone, and the apostles and the prophets are the foundation. He's like blurring all of these things. Briefly, Joe made mention of this. A cornerstone um, was not just like a decorative piece for an establishment. It was the very thing that the whole house was built upon. So, like, you would set up a cornerstone, and then the whole, like, dimensions for the house or whatever it is you're building is off that cornerstone. And they've, they've discovered these massive cornerstones that held up these massive structures, and often the cornerstones are, like Joe said, the only things that remain. He's saying Jesus is that for the church. The foundation is the, uh, the apostles and the prophets, the teaching that is happening through the early church, and that we to draw on Peter's language, are all living stones being built into a house, a temple for God's spirit to live in. So there was a temple that was destroyed in the, uh, after Jesus' um, life, death, and resurrection. That temple was destroyed. A new temple has been built, but it's made of people. And Jesus is the cornerstone. And the teaching of the apostles and the prophets is the foundation. And it's continuing to grow. The house is just getting bigger. This is all the imagery that Paul likes to use. Mackie, the temple was a potent symbol of God's desire for heaven and earth to be reunited. The temple was a space where heaven and earth overlapped. The dwelling place of God's presence and glory. Notice this. In Jesus, we see the perfect union of these two realms, the life of heaven invading earth. And the new humanity, namely the church, becomes a temple filled with God's spirit. They become an assembly of people who are now the physical expression of Jesus himself. So the church has become the dwelling place of God. Moving on, because I'm out of time, at the end. We can have this whole conversation about Jew and Gentiles being reconciled and dividing walls of hostility and all this stuff, and it's like, boom, knowledge. Thank you for that. I'm going to take that with me and use that later. But where does the rubber meet the road? We hear this talk of, of a new humanity of shalom and the church is the expression of shalom and i just have one question for you has that been your experience mine no the church is very divided people in this room are divided we often don't experience christ as our peace because we've built up dividing walls of hostility between one another. I told you at the beginning of this message, I think the word for the church is to remember. In line with the prophets like Moses and Isaiah, the church has forfeited her calling to be a unified people. And we are more divided than the rest of the world. I heard about this story. Um, it's a, not a real story, but a gentleman is walking, and as he's walking on a bridge, he sees a man about to jump. And he says, no, 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 don't, 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 don't jump. You have so much to live for. And he's like, are you a religious person? And he says, yeah. He says, great. Like, what are you, Buddhist or Hindu or, you know, he's, I'm Christian. He says, sweet, me too. And he's like, you know, uh, what kind of Christian are you? Like, do you, you know, uh, are you, are you uh, orthodox? Are you Catholic? Are you Protestant? He's like, I'm Protestant. Oh, sweet. Me too. What division of Protestantism? Are you like Pentecostal? Are you Baptist? I'm Baptist. Awesome. Me too. What kind of Baptist are you? Are you like Southern Baptist Convention? Are you like any of Baptist? He said, like, I'm Southern Baptist. Oh, sweet. Me too. Are you like the Southern Baptists who are like with Wick Warren and down for women teaching? Or are you like the other Southern Baptists who are like down with Wick Warren and aren't for women teaching? Oh, I'm I'm for women teaching. Die, heretic, and pushes him off the bridge. Right? It's a joke. It didn't really happen. But that's how we treat each other. All these little levels of this, 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 this. When he thought he was just a random guy, no, let me save you. But when he didn't believe with him anymore, he's like, we're not on the same boat. That's how we treat one another. May it never be said of us here in this room. May we live into the prayer of Jesus that we would be one as him and the Father are one. Now, shalom doesn't come by accident. It comes through blood, sweat, and tears. It comes through doing the hard work of what Paul calls the ministry of reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians 5, he says that we no longer look at one another by the metrics of the flesh, by our ethnicities, our nationality. We don't don't treat each other that way. He says, why? Because new creation has broken forth, and we are now one new humanity. Peace is only possible because of Jesus. If we all wanted to go eat after this, we couldn't all decide on a place, but here's what we all unify on. Jesus is Lord, and that's the bond of peace that keeps us together, is our allegiance to Jesus. Church Father Irenaeus says this, he became what we are in order that we might become what he is. We are to be people of peace, people who make peace. So the call for us today is to remember who we are. We are the new humanity meant to display the peace of Christ to the nations. And what would it look like if a community from people of different socioeconomic tiers, different nationalities and ethnicities, different backgrounds, different political beliefs, all these things that divide us could unify under the name of Jesus What would that show the rest of the world? They're pining for unity. They're longing for peace. What would happen if the church, the local church, was this expression of every tribe, tongue, and nation coming and worshiping Jesus? It would be a light to the world to say, I don't know what's happening there. People, Republicans and Democrats and Hispanic people and white people, and you know, people of all these people are coming and just worshiping together. And doing life together and breaking bread together and loving and caring for one another and blessing the people around them. Most people's image of church is to come, hear a guy like me give a TED talk for 45 minutes or so, sing some songs, grab some coffee, and go to lunch. This is not a biblical paradigm of what the church is. The biblical paradigm of the church is a new humanity, a living temple unified into Christ. Is that your vision for church? Do you see yourself as a stone of a spiritual house in which God's spirit dwells that is supposed to be inviting the nations to come and worship? Or do you see you are just coming here to hear a talk and sing some songs? That is not the biblical paradigm for the church. Remember who we are. We are a new humanity because of what Jesus has done. So the invitation for us is to remember, Lord Jesus, may we become who we already are, a new humanity. Amen.